Imagine if you would a coin waiting to be flipped. Heads, you could make the world better by double or more. Tails, you destroy the world completely. Would you flip that coin? Would you take that bet? If you've heard of this hypothetical coin flip, anyone heard of it? Yep. Yeah, then you probably know about the person who apparently regularly boasted that he would flip that coin, and he, he encouraged others to do the same. Sam Bankman Freed, uh, <laughs> also known as <laughs> the Crypto King Champion Coin Flipper. In a courtroom in New York City, Carolyn Ellison, his ex girlfriend and former CEO of one of his companies, testified to that effect. Ellison's testimony was part of a month-long trial that ended this week, of course. And on Thursday, the verdict was issued saying Sam Bankman Freed was found guilty on seven charges of fraud and conspiracy. He was convicted of essentially siphoning money from the cryptocurrency exchange that he ran, FTX, to his own crypto trading company called Alameda Research, named after, yes, our very county here. Um, the verdict was a climactic event in what the New York Times this week called one of the fastest and most spectacular fails from grace modern corporate history. A year ago, SBI, Sam Bankman Freed, was the 30-year-old Wunderkind of Silicon Valley with a net worth of 20 billion. And in a year, he went from someone hailed for his supposed commitment to effective altruism, to being convicted of absconding with at least $8 billion of other people's money. He went from fascinating investors and journalists alike with his quirky personality as he wore grubby shorts and t-shirts while sharing the stage with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And he boasted about playing League of Legends during important meetings with investors to being convicted as the mastermind behind this massive fraud at the heart of his two companies, dragging his closest friends, his significant other, his family members, including his two Stanford professor parents, all down with them. Now, Sam Freed's story and how it ends, <laughs> at least how it's ending, is in many ways, I would say, unsurprising. As the story goes, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. The coin flip story says a lot about this man's character, which is likely why the prosecution wanted the jury to hear it. Is it any surprise that someone who's willing to risk the obliteration of the universe for the possibility of a huge payoff would be willing to risk billions of people, other people's dollars for the same thing? Well, I start with this little anecdote about SBF because the story of his rise and fall actually feels oddly relevant to the story we're looking at today. As you might remember, we're in the midst of this teaching series of calling Activated Faith, in which um, we're thinking about how we might grow in action, inspired by some of the provocative parables that Jesus told. Jesus told stories that were meant to activate to listen, to provoke some response, stories with intent, as my former New Testament professor used to say. 
But it's not always easy to understand what the intent is, what the action he was needing to promote is intended to be. Often these stories open themselves up to multiple interpretations, but hoping Jesus invited us to be puzzled, be surprised, but to work with it and understanding, and in the process to be safe, that we might move forward into meaningful action. So today we're going to look at a story that has been puzzling readers of Luke's gospel for a long time, and likely puzzle us too, as Jesus invites uh, his audience to consider what we might learn perhaps, by intending to the Sambayan's needs of the world. So we pick up Jesus' story at the beginning of Luke, chapter 16. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who was informed of accusations that his manager was wasting his assets. So he called the manager in and said to him, what's speaking about you? Turn in the account of your administration because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking my position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what to do so that when I am put out of business, people will welcome me into their homes. So he contacted his master's debtors one by one, and he asked them first, how much do you all ask? The man replied, under measures of olive oil. The manager said to them, take your bill, sit down, quickly, the right to eat. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? The second man replied, a hundred measures of wheat. The manager said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master demanded the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of life. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. The one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and one. Super clear, isn't it? <laughs> this passage here has two sections with it. Okay, the first is the parable, the story which seems to deal with some issues around money management, and the second contains some additional thoughts, some just general teaching about it. Now, I think the second section seems pretty straightforward. But the parable itself, is it just me, or is Jesus like trying to mess with people's heads? If you're feeling a bit confused or uncomfortable, the good news is you're not alone. By many scholarly accounts, this parable it just might be the trickiest of Jesus to interpret. It's commonly called the parable of the unjust steward or the dishonest manager. Partly the name of a role model, at least the kind of role model we might expect Jesus to present. So is that what he's doing? Let's dig in and see if we can figure it out. So to review, the story starts with this person of great wealth being informed that his manager is squandering his assets. 
The whether the guy is maliciously managing the money poorly or simply incompetent, we don't know. It's not, it doesn't say. But the result is the same. The rich man is not pleased and he wants to fire the manager and find someone else to take over the books. But first, he needs the manager to pull the records together so he has something to turn over to someone else. Now, a cultural note here. This is likely not a lowly, a like lowest level slave brought in to do manual labor type person. This guy is a white collar servant of sorts. He's similar to maybe a financial planner or stock investor we might see today. Someone a very rich hire to manage their assets, collect their debts, and so on. Um, the manager in this world would have had total financial authority. So they have the right to make purchases, to collect debts, to forgive debts, as if they were the master themselves. That's as long as they're actually working. Obviously, if you had someone who had total control over your assets, you want them to be somebody you thought you could trust to actually manage that well. And clearly the rich man has become aware of the fact that this manager is proving worthy of his trust, so he rightfully chooses to sack him. And that's where things get kind of interesting. The manager goes back to his office and devises a plan. And it's a crafty He knows that once this thing is up, he has no marketable skills to make a living with. He's not a manual labor type of guy, so he thinks that's out. He is too proud to beg. Um, so he thinks, probably he thinks it's unlikely he'll find another job as a financial manager once word gets out why he was fired from this game. So what is he to do? Well, the guy decides to pull out, you know, his first century version of an iPhone and start working his way through contacts. He calls each of his employer's debtors and with each of them, he engages in a little creative bookkeeping. Jesus uses two examples here. But we can safely assume they represent many more debtors. Now, the scale of the debts named is quite large. So, so much so that it's unlikely that these debtors are like personally indebted to this wealthy man. These are probably business transactions. Okay, he's, he's negotiating with other business people. The manager asks each of the debtors what they owe. Maybe we get a clue into why he didn't do so well at his job because he seems to have to ask them, how much do you owe? Like, shouldn't he know? Isn't that what his job is? Anyways, the first guy says he owes 100 measures per hour, which is the equivalent of 875 gallons of oh, That's a lot of right? This would be equal to more than three years' pay for a daily wage worker. So in the present time, it would have been a lot of money. It's like a business transaction. Immediately after the debtor tells him how much he owes the master, he says, okay, make it 50. Let's chop that 875 gallons in half. And what debtor is going to object to that? He's being offered an amazing deal. And for the moment, the manager still has the power to make that happen. So the debtor agrees, alters the promissory note, cuts the debt, and again, again, the manager cuts these deals with all these people who owe his master money. And all would go well, except, of course, the master finds out. We don't know how, but he finds out. And rather than leave the guy for cheating him more, what does he do? He praises him. He commends this dishonest manager for acting socially. How does that make sense? 
Another important cultural clue might help us out here has to do with ancient customs in regards to reciprocity. Customs of the day dictated that if someone did something generous for you, you were socially expected to reciprocate, to repay the favors. So this guy, for the moment, has control over these debts. If he cuts them in half, which he totally has the power to do at this very moment, the debtors will no doubt feel they they have him to thank for cutting him done such a good deal. Likely, the master provides for the manager's room and board. So he knows once he's turned out on the street, he'll now have lots of favors. Favors he secured with his master. That's what he means when he devises his plan and says, I know what to do. So when I'm out put out of management, people will welcome me into their house. Pretty practical. So why does the mask recommend it? This is the part where it seems like maybe Jesus is not saying that. We're all ready for the conclusion to be the master finds out the man has cheated him, he strips him of his clothes, he feeds him severely, throws him into prison, and so it will be with you if you squander what your master has given you, right? That's kind of like the expected conclusion. But it's not how Jesus wraps up the story. Instead, the master finds out what the manager's done, and his reaction is like, well, well, right? The master seems to be genuinely impressed with this guy's shrewdness. He might be a total scoundrel, but you gotta give him something to be smart. He is clever. And then it seems to earn a bit of respect. This guy has even painted his manager into a corner because he's changed the debts on behalf of him. This master's own reputation is also on the line because this guy was acting on his authority, right? If he turns around and reneges on all the deals the, man the manager just cut, his own reputation is tarnished. In a reciprocity world, you don't want all your business associates to see you as either out of control of your own assets or someone who backs out of the deal. So to cry foul makes the master look The guy has totally exploited him for his own gain. Uh, he's secured his own reputation and likely also probably has given the reputation of the boss a few boosts as well just for being so, you know, charitable in cutting these deals. So you gotta admit, like the guy or not, he looks like getting So what are we supposed to do with this character? What's Jesus telling us? Is he a fan of chasing wealth? That can't be. This is the same Jesus who spoke clearly to the rich young ruler, remember, said if he wanted to follow Jesus, he needed to sell all his possessions and give them to the poor. This is the same Jesus who said it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of an eagle than the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the same Jesus who said, blessed are you who are poor for the kingdom of God belongs to you. And the same Jesus who said that the very end of our passage, you can't serve God in money. So it's in the broader context of all of Jesus' teachings on money that this parable is used. So it can't be said we should be chasing well, does this story mean we should cheat others and we should buy things? Not exactly. But I do think there might be something Jesus wants us to know. 
And it's summed up in Jesus' first comments after the parable is done. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. I don't think Jesus is asking his people to become people of the world rather than people of light. I don't think he's asking them to throw their integrity out the window and cheat and steal, but he is asking them to pay attention to the smart way that those who have less scruples seem to go about their business. He does seem to believe there's something they might learn from. And the key to what that might be comes at the purpose. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourself by how you use worldly wealth, so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Make friends for yourself. Use your money to make why? Because money runs out and it's impermanent, but relationships have eternal worth. You see, I think Jesus is being shocking and a bit cheeky to make an important point. Money is tied to this life and it's of no value in whatever's past. Just like the old cliche said, you can't take it with you. Whatever money we hoard or spend on ourselves, it's of little use to us in the end. Jesus has made this point in different parables and sermons before, but here's the new twist. So if you can't take it with you, you might as well spend it on something you need. And apparently that's the thing is relationships. Relationships. People who will welcome us into eternal homes, just like the forgiven debtors welcome the manager. Our money might not be permanent, but apparently our friendships would be. I think Jesus uses this cheeky story to teach a lesson because he knows his audience. He's speaking to mainly poor and working class folks. These folks are not of the world of the master or the manager. They likely look with disgust on all of that, even if they envy their money. But perhaps to them, Jesus would say, sure, there is plenty to critique there. I'm certainly not endorsing the dishonesty or the greed. But there's something you have you can learn that could be useful to you. Reciprocity is a powerful ally. A number of Jesus' core followers, remember, were originally fishermen. And when Jesus first called them, he told them he'd show them how to fish for people. I wonder if in this story that is some of what he's doing. The bait for human beings, of course, is worms and they can't be caught with nets. But perhaps money, resources for all the dangers and falls can actually also be very useful in this work of catching people. Now, it sounds a bit crass to say it that way. Is Jesus saying we should buy our friends, bribe people into the kingdom? I don't think so. I think that's a pretty reductionist way of looking at it. But I, what I really think Jesus is saying is just the generosity and powerful stuff. It has a profound ability to open up relational opportunities. Generosity can disarm people in meaningful ways. It puts us on friendlier terms. And the ministry Jesus is calling his followers to, to share the blessing, the fullness of life that Jesus brings, that is a generous ministry that happens best in the context of personal relationships. So why not blow some up? as part of that. So how exactly does Jesus want us to respond? 
to this crazy If Jesus' parables or stories with intent, what is that intended reaction? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that whatever assets we have, we are only managers. We are managers. From dust we came to dust we will return. Whatever we have to spend is what God has trusted to us. We are controlling assets that have been given to us to control, but which have also been given to us for a season. And at some point, we'll be taken away. Ultimately, this is not our It is God's. But the divine is giving us real authority and agency. God is giving us permission to spend on their behalf. We see in other places, like the parable of the talents, that God expects us to invest what we're given to manage, not simply bury it in the ground and keep it safe. With this parable, I hear Jesus saying, go ahead and spend the money. I want you to. Just make sure you're spending it on the right things, something that will pay off long And when you do, I will say to you, Mark, well played. I don't think that Jesus tells this story of the dishonest manager as an example of how we then show up with him. I don't think it's a go and then do likewise kind of thing. I think it's more of a how much more kind of parable. This is another uh, one of Jesus' favorite teaching devices. If this is true, how much more is that true? If God feeds the ravens, how much more will God feed you? If God clothes the flowers, how much more will God clothe you? In this case, I think maybe Jesus might be saying something like this. This steward manager, this shrewd manager, he only cared about his pursuit of money led him to play the system so that he would be financially secure. But in the end, the security was reliant on having positive relationships with others. He used money to bless others which then forced relationships from he, which he would benefit. If this guy was only motivated to be generous to save his own skin, would experience blessing and reciprocity for his hospitality, how much more could you, who seek genuine relationships, experience that fruitfulness of hospitality? If this guy, who's only motivated to look after himself, understands it's in his best interest to invest in others. How much more should you put that in practice? For the manager, relationship was the means to an end. But for you, you who care about others and seek their welfare, just as I, Jesus, myself do, the relationship is the end. The money is just the means. So how much more fruitful would your efforts be when you take a page from the shrewd manager's book? And bless some folks in your sphere with what you've got. It's my money anyway, so go out and spend it on something that would pay off long term. So if this interpretation is valid, then that brings us to what Jesus is inviting people actually into, to actually share what we have to bless others, to give things away. That's the invitation, right, Jesus has for us, to share whatever resources you have as a means of blessing others practically and opening up relationships. And we may not always feel like we have that much to give financially, but I think the invitation still holds, just as it did for Jesus' working class audience, right? So this might mean taking someone out for a meal or offering to pay a bill that 
you know, they can't manage right now, but it also could be free to watch their kids for a few hours or giving them a ride somewhere. The point is giving practically of whatever resources you have. Remembering they're not ours to possess, but to steward, and Jesus is providing us to steward them towards others. Personally, I think Jesus is kind of having fun with this story. I think he probably thought it was fun to present this SBF scoundrel type character and then invite his listeners into a bit of playful discomfort. But in the same way, I think he's inviting us to have fun with this. This shouldn't be an onerous task. It should be a freedom. Here's some money. It's not yours. Just give it away. Make some people happy. Make new friends. See what happens. Have fun doing it. Over the last decade, social psychologists have done a lot of research around a practice that they call pro-social spending, meaning spending on other people. And these researchers wanted to find out if there was any correlation between how people spend their money and how happy spending it is. And they found out there is a very strong one. In experiment after experiment, in culture after culture, among laborers in third world Uganda to affluent college students in Canada, the results are the same. Despite what people predict with these two of them, when they actually spend money on others, they feel happy. Many of the experiments went something like this. So you give someone an envelope of money, say $5, it could be $20. You tell people, spend the money by the end of the day on yourself or spend it on someone else. At the end of the day, you call, you ask them what they spend it on and how they feel as a result. Person after person who was given money for themselves, bought a coffee, they bought some bucks and earrings, makeup, whatever. They'd say it's fine. It didn't really do much for them emotionally. But the people who took the money and bought their friends a coffee felt much happier. Similar experiments in the workplace yielded interesting results. If you give every member of a team a bit of cash and tell them to spend it on themselves, they'll each go out to lunch or something, there will be no net positive effect. You essentially lose it. But you have them spend the money on your teammates, and things change. Teams are not only happier, they are markedly more productive. Meaning the financial investment more than pays off, it actually makes some money. One of the researchers, Michael Norton, summed it up in a TED Talk on the findings this way. If you think money can't buy happiness, you not spending it. One of my favorite tasks as pastor here at Haven is working with folks from our Haven board to give away at least 10%, if not more, of everything that comes in here at Haven. So every year, we support folks in our community when financial needs come up. We help pay bills. We, we try to make gifts wherever they're needed. Um, sometimes we send gifts like DoorDash cards, flowers, etc., just to communicate care in the midst of a personal crisis. We also give to a number of organizations outside of Haven who are doing important work that we believe in, we want to support, like groups like the Transgender Law Center for their work defending transgender rights, or the local indigenous organization, the Seguritae Lanthas, or Inside Housing, or Money Dangerous Work Including Housing, uh, for their work on the community And since our recent retreat, we've also been imagining together, right, some next steps for Haven. 
ways we can both grow and building community amongst ourselves not reaching folks who don't have a spiritual home but might appreciate hunger and as our leaders process all that input and we discern some experiments to run in 2023, I wonder how we might think about more of this deploying resources in these might part of what we feel calls movements in the coming year include some more opportunities for pro soldiers. So God's inviting us like a manager to spend the divine's money to be shrewd about it, spend it on others. But I think there's one more important takeaway here. And it's found in these words from Jesus. If then you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? Who will entrust you with the true riches? The reality is that the most valuable things do not come in tax credit or crypto. Jesus is inviting us to focus on something beyond it, something he calls true riches. What is he talking about? For me, true riches is a different kind of currency. We might call it the currency of the kingdom of God. I think true riches is a way of speaking to the intangible, inestimable power of habits of the divine that flows in and through our relationships, our prayers, our acts of service, our words of encouragement to one another and to our neighbors. True riches are those moments of transcendence that remind us that, that we are not alone, that our actions are not isolated, that we are connected to something bigger and truer and more beautiful than ourselves. True riches means to me spiritual power. Secretness, unity, divine. And if we want to continue to grow as a community that's truly creating safety and honoring diversity and centering on Jesus, then we need more than money. We need true riches. If we want to lay hands on one another and see each other encounter the Spirit's presence and we fall out to the divine, we need true riches. If we want to participate in the smashing of items that uphold systems of oppression and distort our view of and reality of our view of reality and God, we want to help tear down items like patriarchy, heteronormativity, white supremacy, capitalism, then of course we really need some true riches. If we want to cultivate community that can endure all the crises of our world all the disasters taking place around us, looming off the horizon. We want to live into interdependence, collective care in the midst of all that is threatening the terrorists of art. And that starts apparently by managing well what we understanding that as we're faithful with what we've already been given, we may have the opportunity to be faithful with God. Friends, we don't have to flip a thing to magically make the world a better place. We don't have to risk destroying everything to improve the world we inhabit. I don't think we're called to gamble with the world. 
I think we're called to invest. So maybe invest wisely. May we steward our resources well. May we open up pathways to more relationships that prove fruitful as they benefit from the infusion, not just of monetary, but true riches. And as we do so, may we experience cheating Jesus saying, welcome. Paper us in the world going to make decision. Rather, grateful for the ways that, in some ways, we we have been learning some of these lessons. A great. This is a generous space. But that is the truth. I pray that you would continue to grow us in in wisdom. And how to best manage, how to best both socially and some of what we've been gracious Would you continue to speak to and through this community as we continue the journey of learning how we might best build relationships with the world around us? Understand it, that that has the capacity to be the work. Some people experience more of those conditions. And stewarding what we have. All right, friends. So we're going to go into our time of discussion. And I have a few questions you could consider together, or of course, always whatever the story is brought up. So the first is how does the story strike you? What do you take from it? Second, this idea of pro social spending. What does that look like in your life? And how might you want it to look? Uh, going forward, is it for you personally or for me? And the third is, what do you think about this term, three riches? How would you describe them? What might you think it means to steward them? So those are our discussion questions. We'll um, go ahead and get into groups of about four or so for 10 minutes, and then we'll come back for a